We're in a series called Masterclass. We're studying parables of Jesus, and we're asking what would Jesus, the, the teacher, what would Jesus, the master teacher, have to teach us? He is the master. He is the master teacher. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. I was actually there last Sunday, but if you have a Bible, you might open it with me to Luke chapter 15. It's the story, uh, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, super familiar. I'm guessing almost everybody has at least heard of it, if not mostly familiar with the story. But there's so much there that I couldn't cover it all last week, quite frankly. And uh, there were two different directions I wanted to go with this. And I want to go a particular direction today. Do you ever wonder how it is that some people just miss completely the graciousness and the goodness of God? Because when you experience the gracious and goodness of God and the graciousness of God, you wonder to yourself, why would people skip out on this? But it goes a little deeper than that. It's not just that there are people in the world who never hear the name. And yes, the responsibility is on us. We need to go share Jesus with them. But it's not just that. There, There are millions of people all across America who've probably heard of the prodigal son story, but they don't see God as someone they want to be welcomed home to. Further than that, there are people in our churches who week in and week out do the religious thing, but still somehow pass by the goodness and the graciousness of God. I'm going to go one step further. Do you ever you ever have an experience in a church that makes you say, you know what? Like, I don't want to miss the graciousness and goodness of God. But church people are mean sometimes. Have you ever had an experience that made you think, I don't want to miss the goodness and graciousness of God, but I'm willing to miss the goodness and graciousness of his people because they're not always gracious and good. How many people have you met who their story is, I I believe in God. Like, I believe he's real. Like, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's real. I had somebody tell me this just a few weeks ago. I just don't believe in church. So where's God in all of that? And what is it God would want in all of that? I mean, church wounds run really deep. And they largely revolve around us treating someone with something other than God's truth and God's graciousness and God's goodness. In fact, you could easily say, If you know the parable of the prodigal son at all, right, it revolves around two brothers, right? There's a younger son and an older son. The younger son's the rebel and the older son's kind of the religious, I'm better than you type guy. You could easily see that some people go to church and they meet the older brother before they ever meet the father. And they conclude that they, they don't want what it is we do here. How does that get healed? What is it God would do to heal those kinds of wounds among us? So that we long for not only God's graciousness and goodness, but each other's. Now what happens in churches that get it and work on it and it's healed And what's missing in churches that don't? I want to see if I can get at that a bit today. But I want to take you back through the story of the prodigal son. I want to read it in detail one more time. But before I do, I'm going to bring a painting on screen today. Our normal uh, sort of process is to bring on screen while I'm reading scripture, the words of the scripture. And this is by no means an attempt to equate this painting with scripture. Does anybody know by chance who, who painted this painting? 
Rembrandt painted this painting. And I want you to meditate on what you see in the painting, because frankly, the longer you look, the more you see. And I want you to listen to these words while you meditate. Luke 15, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set out for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. As we talked about last week, right? That was, a, that was an abominable kind of thing to, to a Jewish man. I don't know, if you were sent to feed the skunks, I would... You might be getting in the ballpark of sort of how they thought about this. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, I'll go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. In fact, it literally says he kept on kissing him. He showered him with kisses. And the son gave the speech. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could even finish his words, the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. These were symbols and signs of sonship. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, a lot of times when we think about the parable of the prodigal son, what I've just read is the story we think about. Who's the son that rebelled against God, against the father? The younger son. Who's the son that went far away from the heart of God and needed redemption? The younger son. Who's the son that, that left home thinking that everything he wanted was not found there at home, needed to be brought back into the family, was the younger son, right? But that's really the story within the story. It, that first half, first two-thirds or so of the story is really the setup for the reason Jesus told this story. You might remember that Luke 15 begins, and it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus I get that. Because the more I think about how broken I am and how sinful I am, the more appealing the teaching of Jesus seems to me. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And they grumbled, you know, they muttered under the breath. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. How dare. So Jesus continues the parable. He says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants, and he asked him, hey, what's going on? And the servant replied, your brother has come home, your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But the older son answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. That's actually probably an exaggeration. (laughs) I was a teenager once. I still act like one sometimes. Never once. I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, now listen to this language, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him? The father said, my son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this, now get the language again, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. What do you see, what do you see in Rembrandt's? Obviously, he didn't go literal because he doesn't have the son outside, he doesn't have the father running. This is maybe a moment after the reunion, when the, when the son's still, the youngest is still repentant. So clearly, who's the youngest son? The one kneeling, and who's the father? Right, it's obvious, right? Who's the older brother? Looking down on both. Anything, anything odd stand out to you in this photo? Anything you would not expect. Or maybe something you would expect, but it's captured in some little detail. The other two? Yeah, there's three almost. Yeah, in the upper left. He's way back. Right, this is why Rembrandt is Rembrandt, right? The, the, the painter of light and dark. Back here, you see a faint woman in the background. And who these other two are and who he intended, kind of hard to know. Um, there are many paintings of Rembrandt where, for lack of a better way of saying it, there's a guy with a hat that doesn't make sense in the photo. And there's some suggest there's a there's a similar painting of the crucifixion, where there's a guy in the middle, looking at Jesus, kind of quizzitively, with a hat. This is what Rembrandt does. In fact, I think you you in some sense could suggest that perhaps that is Rembrandt. In fact, Rembrandt. Uh, painted many photo, uh, many portraits of himself. You could say that he invented the selfie. <laughs> yeah, I, that's not even a joke. He put himself in a lot of paintings. I notice, right, that the older son and the father are wearing the royal robes, if you will, the the robes of the family. I notice. The eyes of the older son looking down not only on his brother, but the father. I noticed the repentant son having lost his hair, missing a shoe. When I look deeply, I noticed that on his waist is a, is a, a small sword, a dagger for protection. There's lots here. The point's not the Rembrandt. The point is the story. That there's always far more here than meets the eye if if we'll meditate and pause long enough. If we'll put ourselves in the story, think about who we are, where we've been. You know, last week, I said, it wasn't the main thing, it wasn't the one thing, but that one of the points last week was that dad in heaven is the best chance on earth of healing our parent wounds. You know, our father wounds, our mother wounds. I want to take that and go a step further with it today. 
In fact, this is the one thing I want to convince you of today, that dad in heaven is the best chance on earth of healing a relational wound, of healing a brother wound or a sister wound or a church wound. That if there's ever going to be healing, it happens because of what comes from the heart of the Father. Not because of what's in the heart of the two brothers. At some level, this, this portrait and this picture that not only Rembrandt paints for us, but the scripture paints for us, is the picture of a family that's been torn apart. And it was, to be fair, torn apart by the actions of the younger son. Dad, you're dead to me. Which also means, brother, you're dead to me. Mom, you're dead to me. But as I really meditate and think about this in more detail, this is going to seem like a long way around to get to where I want to go about how God heals wounds in the church, about how God heals wounds in our relationships, brother-sister wounds. But I want to show you that really in this story, what we have are three ways of relating to God. And, and I'll just sum them up really quick. There are three ways in the story of relating to God. There's, there's the, the way of rebellion. That's the younger son. That seems clear, doesn't it? There's the way of religiosity or religion. Sort of the I'm better than Eunice, the comparative perfectionism that you see in the older son. Did you catch that there were three sons in the story? Actually, four, if you really think deeply. The father is a son. But that's not the one I intend. There are three sons in the story. The younger son, the older son, and the son of God who's telling us the story. And what we have contrasted is three different ways of relating to the father. Three different ways of relating to God. All right, first, the younger brother. And this path is a path away from God. I'm going to call it younger brother syndrome. And it's normal for a lot of us to experience and go through younger brother syndrome. This is the path of rebellion. And the path of rebellion creates wounds of unrighteousness. So you think about everything the younger brother wanted. He said, I can't find that at home. I can't find that with a father. I can't find that from my family. I'll go find that in the world. And he rebelled and he ran as far away as he could get. But he also ended up as low as he could possibly get. Distanced from family, distanced from the father, squandered everything he had in prodigal living, wild living, loose living, and having nothing left Right, He was resorted to feeding the pigs and wishing he could eat what he was feeding the pigs in some far-off land. Younger brother syndrome. Did you go through a rebellious phase in your life? When we're younger brothers, and this is a story about brothers, but can we surmise that there are younger sisters too? The younger brother finds his identity in consuming the next feel-good thing. The younger brother says, hey, I don't care about dad anymore. In fact, the only thing he seems to care about is what he can get from dad financially. He gives no thought to dad or brother or family. He's preoccupied with self. He wastes the privileges of being a son. He puts faith in anything and everything except the Father, and we could say except God. He finds his identity in, in the things of the world, performance and possessions and pleasure, position. All those Ps that sort of represent all the stuff we go after in the world that isn't God. His main goal is self-fulfillment, and he achieves that goal by running away from the father, as far away as he could get. 
in, if you could listen to his thinking, it would sound something like this, that, that I don't want anything that the Father offers. His primary need is to discover the emptiness of the world, which he does in the story. And frankly, there are churches that are a lot like younger brothers. Because there are churches that'll, you know, that there is no truth really, and they'll just climb into the pig pen with you and celebrate your sin. That doesn't help the wounds that are created, the wounds of unrighteousness. Now, this seems fairly obvious to me, but there are plenty of people in the world who say, I don't want what God offers. Right? Younger brother syndrome. Any of you, were you ever younger brothers at some point? I was a younger brother. My brother would remind me I still am too. Number two, older brother syndrome. Older brother syndrome is the path of religion. Younger brother syndrome is the path of rebellion. It is a path away from the heart of God that creates wounds of unrighteousness. Older brother syndrome is the path of religion that is also a path away from the heart of God. And older brother syndrome creates wounds of self-righteousness. Couldn't you see it in the portrait? The self-righteousness of the older brother who would judge the father and the son. Where we end up by the end of the story is two sons, both missing the heart of the father, and only one son seeking reconciliation, right? Which I think is just Jesus's point. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants, and he asked him, hey, what's going on? And the servant replied, your brother's come home, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, and he refused to go in. Do you know churches like this who treat younger brothers like they don't belong? He became angry. He refused to go in. And his father went out and pleaded with him. And he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. And yet you've never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. See, the thing I want you to see is that the older brother also takes a path that misses the heart of God. That he completely draws away from God in, in exactly and yet not exactly the same way the younger son does. The older brother finds his identity in what he thinks God owes him. He only sees dad based on what dad can give him. He throws shade on the celebration. He's full of resentment and bitterness and anger. He's self-focused. I, I mean, th those words I read from the story, <laughs> I this, I that, I've been slaving for you all these years. You've never given me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. This older brother puts faith in his own ability to be better than the younger brother. He finds his identity in comparison and perfectionism. You ever gone through a perfectionistic phase? You're a failure no matter what because you can't be perfect and yet you console yourself with the fact that you're at least better than like 99% of everyone else. 
the older brother's main goal is, is to get what God owes him. By the way, finding our identity and perfectionism and comparison in religion, essentially, like I'm better than you, so God better let me in. God, God and me got a deal because on that day, like me and, me and him are good because we got a deal and I was better than everybody else, or at least most of everybody else. Finding your identity there is as empty as the younger brother leaving to go find his identity in the pleasures of the world. The, the older brother, if you could listen to his thinking, it sounds like this. Look, I deserve everything God offers, and this son of yours deserves nothing you offer. Full of anger, full of resentment, full of disrespect. And think about the disrespect of, of the parties going on. And there's the, right outside the door, there's the father and the older brother raising their voices about this son of yours. He's in comparison mode, he's full of pride and superiority. He's driven by self. In fact, actually, both brothers, really, in the end, are driven by self. And churches are sometimes like the older brother because they'd be glad to judge your sin and treat you with contempt and condemnation, all while ignoring their own sins. Frankly, older brothers and sisters need the same thing that younger brothers and sisters need. Rebellion and religion are both paths that go away from the heart of the father. Neither is willing to think of what dad wants at this point. Neither really enjoys their relationship with dad, at least early on. Neither serves him with right motives and loving relationship. Neither looks to dad to be the source of joy. Neither humbles himself first. And neither really loves being dad's kid. We call this the parable of the prodigal son. Which son was the prodigal son, by the way? Younger. The younger. <laughs> Which son received the mercy and grace of the father when he came home? The younger. Which son disgraced the father? Yeah. Both disgraced the father. Both refused to have a relationship with the father on his terms of mercy and compassion. Both truly ran away from God. Both were filled with pride and self, and both rejected the heart of the Father. Both disgraced the Father publicly, and both needed the Father to go to them to close the gap. The younger son he met out on the outskirts of town as he saw him coming home, and the, the, the younger son. And the older son, he has to go out from the party because the older son won't come in. Both throw their identity as a child of God away. Both humiliate dad. Both misinterpret dad's heart. Both are preoccupied with self. Both have resentment of some kind. Both for look for happiness outside of their walk with dad. Both skip humility, go full in on pride. And both see God as someone that in the end, you just have to slave for. Both said, I want to do it my way. The youngest son, the way of the world. The oldest son, the way of religion. In a sense, I think this is telling us that, and if you read the teachings of Jesus you certainly will see this, that I not only need to repent of my sins of unrighteousness, but I need to repent of my sins of self-righteousness. I think younger brothers, frankly, would be more willing to come home if they saw more of us older brothers repenting of our self-righteousness. If we were more an extension of 
grace and compassion and mercy. And the path back to dad is frankly the same, that God comes to you filled with grace. By the end of the story, what we think about each son sort of changes. The unexpected happens. The sons, in a, in a sense, change places because the younger son was on the outside looking in and now he is on the inside in the mercy of God and the older son is on the outside. Which reminds me of the third way. Right? And this is simply what we would call following Jesus. It's salvation. It's the third path. Jesus following salvation. It's the path of relationship that leads, frankly, to Jesus following servanthood. And this is the path we try to embrace here at Harvest. That we've taught for years and years and years and years that what we need is a relationship with the Father that happens on His terms, and His terms are grace and mercy. And as we have that relationship, our hearts are melted, and our hearts are transformed, so that they're not any longer, in some eternal sense, rebellious hearts, nor self-righteous hearts. That we're cooperating with God, not for salvation, but for the change of life that happens where my heart becomes a heart that if the Bible, we use the Bible's language, I'm holy as he is holy, but I'm not holier than thou because he is not holier than thou. Does that make sense? The path of Jesus following, the path of salvation obviously puts faith in Jesus alone, not in our ability to be good, not in the things we've done that are so bad. It finds meaningful and full real identity in the love of the Father and the fact that we are the beloved of God, that God loves me as his child. And so our main goal becomes not slaving away for the Father, but serving God in gratitude and love and grace. If you could get inside a Jesus follower's head, you would hear a lot of, God, I know I don't deserve anything, but I'm thankful that Jesus has given me everything. And so our primary need becomes to grow in love and grace, that, that our need becomes to treat others with this same love and grace and to share that love and grace with all those people around us, some of whom are younger brothers, and they're still on the run. And some of whom are older brothers, and they're frankly still on the run too. By the way, Jesus treats me with love and grace. It's worth saying here, this is not an approval of sin. Jesus died for our sins. We don't celebrate what Jesus had to die for. But we offer grace forgiveness and compassion that in the end we have to start in the same place the younger brother ended up a, a path to Jesus a path to the father a path to healing that is paved with humility and repentance and forgiveness Humility where I and me and mine are taken out of the equation. Repentance where there's a genuine turning to the grace of dad. Forgiveness where there's a genuine cancellation of my sins. And if God has forgiven my sins, not based on me being good, but based on what Jesus has done, then I in turn am supposed to pass on the same said forgiveness. That the path back to dad is paved with humility and repentance and forgiveness. But let's be clear, the path back to each other 
is paved the same way. The path back to healing is paved with humility. When I'm willing to humble myself before you and say things like, I was wrong. The path back to healing is paved with each other, with repentance, where I turn from my wrong ways and work on the right ways. The path back to healing with each other is a path of forgiveness, both seeking it and giving it. So that said, I want to talk just for a minute about reconciliation and rebuilding trust. And I want to be clear about that. Because it seems to me that in the story, you have a son who is humble, repentant, receiving forgiveness from the father, right? You agree? Younger son. You have an older son who is not humble. He is filled with pride, not repentant. He's thinking about what he deserves. You have an older son on the path of religiosity or religion, as I'm calling it, who isn't willing to forgive the younger brother, isn't willing to show any forgiveness at all, frankly. So this tells me that you have a younger son who is put back in right relationship with the father, and you have an older son who refuses to be put back in right relationship with the father, but I want you to notice what that means. That means that the older son is also unwilling to be put back in right relationship with the younger son. It's not just how I relate to God, like me and God, we're good, so... In fact, when the older brother says, this son of yours, and I I don't think I'm going that far to think that he probably was yelling by this point because you can hear the, the sneering and the resentment in his voice. This son of yours, and the father's response is, this brother of yours. The father's longing for the older brother to be reconciled with not only himself, but the younger brother. And what I find is that when it comes down to it, when there's been broken trust of this nature, just broken trust that's deep in a family, reconciliation is a long, hard road. The beginning place, as we've said, Humility, repentance, forgiveness. I taught a primer on forgiveness several weeks ago. I'm not going to repeat all of that, but I would encourage you to go back and see and hear how forgiveness really works. This is presumed forgiveness. So where does reconciliation come into the table? Because you have an older son not reconciled with dad or younger brother, and you have a younger son who's not, who is It would appear reconciled with dad, but not with the older brother. Here's what I want you to see about reconciliation. I I threw a definition in here. It's the restoration of friendly relations. It's actually an accounting term that means to make compatible again. Accountants take accounts that don't add up, and they understand, they come to find out how they don't add up, and they make them compatible again. Does Does that make some sense? If you've ever had to like, this is like, I'm going to sound like a super old guy now. If you've ever had to like reconcile your checkbook versus your, I know, what is that? That's like, I think that's dead as much as the payphone. Reconciliation. There are a lot of factors in reconciliation. I listed a bunch of them here. They're not necessarily Uh, They don't necessarily happen in this order as though this is sequential or something. But there needs to be an openness of heart on both parties. There needs to be total honesty about what I've done to contribute to the problem. If these two brothers had been reconciled for one another, with one another in the way, don't you imagine the younger brother would be saying, I did this and I did that and I was wrong, I was wrong for this, I was wrong. But don't you also think the older brother would have to own some wrongs? There would be the passage of time 
A lot of times when we're the younger brother and we want to be reconciled with an older brother, um, let, let's put this in the context of marriage. We've done wrong. We want to be reconciled in the marriage. The one of us that, that, that needs the forgiveness so desperately, which in this story, by the way, is both of them, is so wanting everything to feel right and happen instantly. But when the hurts run deep, time, time does not heal wounds. But time does allow for the processing of wounds and for the other actions of reconciliation. There's a sense of righting the wrongs that needs to take place. It's very fair to ask for there to be something like financial accountability if that's the nature of the wrong or for someone to be able to prove themselves and hold down a job for a while or for someone to seek treatment in a treatment facility for substance abuse. That there are behaviors that are good in reconciliation to say, no, that, that yes, you have a change of heart and you're repentant, but there's got to be a willingness to change behaviors, not just make promises about changing behaviors. Does that, does that fit? There's got to be a lot of listening, a lot of listening to, to be understood, and it has to happen both ways. There has to be clear expectations, and what comes of that is a welcome home. But let's be clear, only one party cannot do this by themselves. If I'm the younger brother and I want to be reconciled with the older brother, it won't happen if the older brother is not willing. And it won't happen if there's not true humility and repentance in both directions. As difficult as it is, sometimes my phone rings and a couple will call me to their home and say, the, the awful thing has happened. One of us has had an affair. And we often in conversation have to go over just these kinds of things for there to be any chance at all at reconciliation. And by the way, and I want to be clear about this, there are some circumstances for which I think God does not expect us to be reconciled. And they are rare, but they do happen. And I'll give you the most clear example of that. When you have an abuse, physical abuse of a person, I... I it can be healthy to come to the point of forgiveness. But to reconcile with the abuser is not something God asks of us. Does that? Forgiveness, we are commanded. Reconciliation is not necessarily, but it is good to seek, especially in the family of God. And for all of that to happen, there has to be a restoring of trust. And so I, again, give us a definition. Trust is confidence. It's to rely upon and place confidence in someone. And there are a lot of factors that play into how we restore trust, how we rebuild trust. There's humility we've already talked about. There's that sense of being genuine and really understood. There has to be a sense of total transparency. Because you know how it goes. If there's false transparency where it's, yes, I've told you the whole story, and then later we find out there was more to the story, right? then trust is broken all over again. Restoring of trust means that there has to be good motives in our heart. There has to be character that is being remade to be solid again, that there's a consistent track record of faithfulness. When there's been a track record of unfaithfulness, that consistent track record of faithfulness is not like, oh, I've been faithful for a day. <laughs> Trust takes time, and this is why. So as we come to the close of this and we pray, I really want to think a couple of ways. A few of you are under the age of 30 or so. And in second service, there'll be more of those folks. If you're under the age of 30 and you're in church on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m., like you are running counter 
to what our culture says in terms of younger brother syndrome. Because the 20s are the time in life, right? To be rebellious, to run away. And if you look at statistics nationally, the hardest group to reach from a church standpoint, from a, from a, even from a grace standpoint, are those who are most in the rebellious stage of life. And a lot of you are over 30, is that fair? But you've lived younger brother syndrome, younger sister syndrome. True? A few of us in the room are over the age of 30. And probably a few of us, at least, have lived older brother syndrome. And being in church is no guarantee that we don't have older brother syndrome. But being in church and filled with humility and repentance, being in church and filled with grace and compassion and mercy, not just for yourself but for others, that's also bucking the culture. And so to the younger and brothers and sisters, I would say, like, man, I am cheering for you. And I want to pray with you in just a moment. And to the older brothers and sisters who aren't being self-righteous, who make harvest a church that is filled with compassion and grace and mercy, and frankly, restoring of trust and rebuilding of reconciliation, that, that, that if you're helping be that kind of place, then I'm cheering for you. But the starting place is Jesus, right? And if you need Jesus today, we want to make sure you have the chance to say right here, right now, I will receive what he offers. I always end our services with two prayers. Our first is a prayer of salvation. Our second is a prayer of discipleship. A prayer of application. They're prayers that I have you pray with me. And if you need Jesus today, maybe for the first time, the, the aha has gone off and you realize that the son telling the story is the one who died on the cross so that you could be welcomed home. If you want to be welcomed home today, you want to turn and repent and be humble and say to God, I don't deserve you, but I need you. Maybe you'd pray with me right now just like this. Dear Jesus, I don't deserve you but you died for my sins anyway. So please forgive me of my wrongs and take over my life and make my heart like yours. Take over my life and be my God. Take over my life and make me so that I'm no longer the younger brother or the older one. Give me your heart, Jesus. Thank you that you take me at all. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. And if that's you, that might be you here in the room, that might be you online. If that's you, we want to celebrate that. We <clears throat> kill the cat, fattened calf, if you will, when people come home. We throw celebrations. It's a big deal. We would love to know about it, but you got to tell somebody. Maybe online, you would fill out our digital communication card. Maybe here in the room, you'd fill out a physical, digi uh, physical communication card. Or you'd find me after service. Or you'd tell somebody you came with. We just want to celebrate. A lot of us made that decision, prayed a prayer like that, a while back. Again, because some of us are just barely over 30, right? And we made that decision to follow Jesus. And maybe we've walked down the path of older brother syndrome. And we know it's not good. Maybe we've walked the path of younger brother syndrome and we know it's not good. I just hope you'd pray this prayer of discipleship with me. A prayer for younger brothers and older brothers, younger sisters and older sisters. Jesus, thank you for grace. I'm nothing without it. And thank you for healing 
my relationship with you. Jesus, please bring your healing to my life, to the rest of my life, and to my relationship with others. Jesus, if I'm on the path of rebellion, show me the way home. And Jesus, if I'm on the path of religion, self-righteousness, then show me the path back to you. I pray for the younger brothers and sisters that they would know I want them home. And I pray for the older brothers and sisters that they would know we love them too. Jesus, I don't control what anybody else does. So help me to do my part towards reconciliation and trust. Speak into my life a name that I might need to do that with. And make our church, oh Jesus, make our church a people of compassion people of grace people of truth and trust and reconciliation make our church a place where restoration is practiced well in Jesus name Amen Amen I'm so glad you